1: Welcome to The Sit-Down, a crime history podcast presented by Barstool Sports. Here's your host, Jeff Nadeau. What's up, everybody? And welcome in to another edition of The Sit-Down. As always, if you enjoy this video and you're watching it on YouTube, make sure you hit the like button and let me know what you think of the discussion in the comment section below. If you're checking us out on audio, whether it's Spotify, Google Pods, or iTunes, welcome in. Make sure you leave us a detailed review and let us know what you think of this week's episode. As always, we are presented by Barstool Sports and I'm your host, Jeff Nader. We have another great show planned for you today. I have to admit, um, I always say this, every week we do a show. I've been wanting to do this episode. I've been wanting to do this episode and generally we have a guest on and I've been looking to speak to this guest for a long time. I've read some of his works as far as books that he's written. People ask me all the time about, hey, Give me a good book to read on crime or the prison system. And today we're going to introduce you to a very interesting story. Really, I think we could say one of the most interesting stories about the federal prison system ever. Uh, we did a show about the Aryan Brotherhood a couple of weeks ago, and we're going to talk more about that today um, with essentially the longest serving federal inmate in social or uh, solitary confinement ever a man that spent essentially 35 years of his life in a box with what we would say, no human contact. We're going to get into all that and more in just a second. We're going to welcome on our guest. But before we do that, I want to tell all of you about Harry's. You know, I've been talking about Harry's. Harry's is the thing now as we head into spring. Look, whether it's spring, fall, winter, summer, it really doesn't matter. Grooming is important. It's that simple. You got to make sure you look your best. And Harry's is going to get you started on your way to do that. They look great in your bathroom. They're going to set up perfectly. Essentially, Harry's is grooming tools, shavers, body wash, all sorts of uh, different grooming tools. And with Harry's, you're going to get incredibly sharp razors that are made in their own factory in Germany. And most importantly, cost, it costs as little as two bucks per blade. They're ergonomic, they work. Five blades. They're gonna give you the best shave you can ask for, and you're gonna get them cheap. As I said, you can get a $15 value on a Truman style shave set right now for just three dollars by checking out our link, Harrys.com/sit. You can schedule replacement blade delivery whenever you need them for refills as low as two bucks. You're also gonna get dozens of affordable items to go along with your subscription, including shaving cream, balm, body washes, all sorts of things to make you feel and look good. Um, do what I did. You got to go check out Harry's. I think you're going to really be happy with the result. Um, and again, you want to look your best as we head into spring and to summer. So right now, go to Harry's.com/sit. Get a Truman style shave set, $15 value for as low as three bucks. Again, that's Harry's.com/sit. Let's get into the episode. As I said, I've been looking forward to speaking to this guy uh, for a long time. Um, This book comes out in two weeks, and I'm going to put the link to the description, where we can find it, the website, everything. This is one of the best books I've ever read on essentially the prison system. Um, And today's guest, Pete Early, who I'm going to welcome in now, is not only a Pulitzer Prize finalist, but he's a New York Times bestselling author. And Pete, you've written um, several books on all sorts of different things. But I think this probably, and I'm waiting on the Hothouse, which I've ordered. This might be your best work yet. Um, You're an expert, I think, on the federal prison system. Pete Early, how are you?
2: Well, thank you, Jeff, for having me in those very, very kind, kind words. I appreciate it. Yeah, I have quite a history with the federal BOP. So uh, this is a book that uh, kind of bookends my career. Early on, I did the Hothouse, where I was the only reporter ever allowed to wander around a maximum security prison uh, for two years. Just talked to anybody I wanted. And uh, that was in uh, 78 to 79, Uh, actually 87 to 89, forgive me. And now I've returned to that subject with no human contact.
1: So you just said something pretty incredible. Um, You are not a criminal. Uh, You've never been in the federal prison system as an inmate. Uh, Neither have I. Um, But you just said, essentially, you were given access to Leavenworth Federal Prison, which at the time was really one of the most secure federal prisons in America. Um, I kind of want to, before we get into uh, Tom Silverstein, who, you know, has a a sad and tragic story, Um, I want to ask you about your career and how that all happened. I guess, like I said, you're not a criminal, right? You're not this is not a subject that many Americans care nor have any sympathy for. Right. You commit a crime and you should go to prison. Um, What got you into this sort of thing? And and again, how what went into getting approval? Because I know through some of my own experiences, even visiting someone in a federal prison system is not easy. How did you get in to speak? And, And I guess what did you learn during that year?
2: Well, it was an incredible, incredible journey. Uh, so it was serendipity. I worked at the Washington Post. I'd always been interested in prisons back to my days when I was a reporter in Oklahoma and visited McAllister State Penitentiary. And so I went to the head of the Bureau of Prisons, a guy named J. Michael Quinlan. And I said, I want to do a book about what it's like every day in a prison, not when there's a, a knifing or whatever, but every day. Now, the Atlanta riot had just happened where there was the Cuban prisoners uh, took over the prison. It was a big deal. He said, you reporters, you always come in right when there's, you know, a tragedy, and then you leave, and you always make us look bad. And I said, I'm willing to spend a year uh, if you'll give me access. And he said, okay, if you'll spend a year, you know, sign the waivers, I'll let you have total access. Well, I went out to Leavenworth, uh, and actually it took me two years to do the book, because i got to tell you, Jeff, even if you're an outsider, when you go into a place, this was a level five maximum security prisons, the, the inmates uh, came out of their cells in the morning, and then they were locked up at night so they could wander around and mix. Even as an outsider, you go in that environment and it wears on you. So I had to do a month in the prison, just wandering around, talking to people. And then I had to come home and I told everybody, well, I'm doing that so I can write my notes and all that. But the truth was, mentally, I needed that break. Now, what am I talking about? Let me tell you one quick story, and then we can answer more questions. But I got when you're in that prison, you pay attention to the person you're talking to. Because you know, if they're offended and everything's about respect, they might kill you. So I come out, and I had a little boy then, uh, my son, and he needed to go to the doctor. So I took him to the doctor. Now, this is a big, well-known Washington, D.C., important doctor. And the nurse comes in and says, why are you here? And I explain it. Then another nurse comes in and says, why are you here? And finally, the doctor comes in and he says, why are you here? And while he's, I'm trying to explain it, the nurse interrupts him. So he looks at me and he says, okay, why are you here? And I said, if you listen to me this time, I'll tell you. Otherwise, quit wasting my time. Well, obviously, that's unacceptable behavior and I was asked to leave. But that's—you get into that. You, you're looking at people, thinking, "What's this person trying to, to get off on me? What's he trying to take from me?" And it—it it just eats at you. I remember seeing a guy stabbed 32 times with a shank, and he survived. And all of us just standing there. And believe it or not, you're—you're you're kind of going like, "Wow, I'm just so glad that's not me," you know. And you're—you're you're entranced in that whole world that's so different.
1: So you, you essentially, uh, you didn't become institutionalized, but you started acting different in your personal right. life um, because you had seen such things and you, you almost, so you can kind of understand how difficult it is for someone who does 20 years, 30 years in federal right. prison to come out and say, okay, well, here you go, live your life and, 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 and live just like everyone else. It's yeah, it but, impossible, isn't
2: it? Yeah. And especially when they put so many restrictions Uh, if you're a felon about housing and where you can work and who will hire you and all that. Let me tell you a quick story. Dallas Scott, an original member of the Aryan Brotherhood back in the San Quentin days, if he could go in any prison covered with tats, you know, uh, he'd walk in any prison and he'd know immediately who was selling dope, who to fear, who not to. And if you gave him two weeks, he'd be running the jail, you know, or he'd be running the prison or he'd be part of the group running the prison. So he gets paroled. And they give him a ticket. He's going home to California. Most of these Aryan Brotherhood guys came out of California. And he has to go to Dallas and catch a flight. So he gets to Dallas and the gate change and he doesn't realize it. So he gets on the airplane and they say, wait a minute, you're, you're on the wrong flight. And everybody laughs as he's leaving, which really insults him. So then he goes down. And the gate has changed again. And he's and he's thinking they're doing it on purpose. He's paranoid. And so he goes to the gate engine, a, agent. He starts screaming at her. And a security guy comes up. And as far as Dallas is concerned, a, a, a rent-a-cop security guy is like a punk. And so they get into a brawl. Four guys come in. He ends up going back to prison. You know, it's the things you and I deal with he hadn't had to deal with over 20 years. Fairly
1: trivial things that, yeah. you know, we all just say, oh, well, that sucks. Yeah. I guess I'll just have to walk down there. You might get annoyed for a second, but you know, it's almost like these people should have like an assistant for six months and, yeah, and, and they should
2: Something because what, you know, when you're in prison, they even tell you when you can go to the restroom, right? Yeah. So I mean, everything is controlled. When you eat, when you get out of your cell, when you don't get out of your cell. And so you go from that environment back into the free world. And it's a, uh, it's a rough, it's a rough transition, especially yeah. when it comes to violence. Uh, now we're talking, we're not talking about the kitty joints. We're not talking about the country club prisons. We're not even talking about the medium. We're talking the end of the line. And, and, you know, uh, I think a study Alcatraz showed that 40% of those uh, prisoners there never came back. And that's a, pretty good figure compared to you know I think nationally recidivism is around 60 percent but it it, uh, you know it's just tough to make it on the outside world when you've been had violence all your life and you're groomed for it and the jobs you can get Uh, a friend of mine who did hard time you know he delivers pizza because he can't it's difficult to get any kind of other job
1: yeah and I, I think you know Maybe in twenty twenty three it's 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 a little easier, but it's still essentially a a, a very grueling type of thing to to come out and, and and find your way. And you know, I've talked to people, we've had people on this channel um that, that have done long prison census. Some I mentioned you, Chad Marks, he's done an, a decent job, but you know, he's one in a million. It's not easy yeah. to do what he's done. So um I wanna I wanna talk about Silverstein because that's really right. this all centers around. In 1983, when two inmates killed two guards at Marion and and that kind of delves into the life. But I, I do want to ask you about quickly just your time inside Leavenworth in No Human Contact. There's a quote about Leavenworth at the time, and it essentially talks about how you only come here when you like I think the quote is when you fuck everyone else up. Or, or something along those lines. Yeah. And-
2: you had to earn your way into Leavenworth. And that, that was no, the no. old Leavenworth, and now Leavenworth has been scaled down. But that was, Leavenworth was considered one of the end the lines. There was one prison above it, Marion, which you just yeah. mentioned, mm-hmm. which had uh, began, uh, became a level six. Uh, but Leavenworth was the last institution that where inmates could walk around. Uh, level six was locked in your cell 23 hours uh, you didn't have that, uh, you know, you didn't have that interchange and stuff. And, you know, I was it was I think that the warden in Leavenworth assumed I could see anyone I wanted uh, because everyone was shocked when I got see Silverstein was literally Jeff in a dungeon. He was buried down underneath the prison.
1: He was essentially. um in a prison inside of max. Right. Which what I want to ask you real quick. Um, so I I want to just talk about your like daily life. Like, so you, you like you're in a hotel and you just for like an eight hour, 10 hour period, you just go there and like mingle around. Is that what you do? Yeah,
2: no, what happened was, so yeah, I had a hotel. Um, you know, people say to me, Oh, did, did you act like, were were you like going in as an inmate? You
1: know, you were like a journalist.
2: Yeah. I mean, everybody knew who I was because let me tell you why. Okay. So you could tell just, just like you're a professional, you do the podcast. If I came up to you and said, Oh yeah, I know how about podcasts. You'd know in a second, I didn't know what I was talking about.
1: Yeah. If so you people go into knew. Prison, yeah.
2: yeah. You go into prison and you're acting like you are a prisoner. They're going to know. And let me give you an example. So Carl Bowles, hard time killer. Uh, everybody's scared of him because they, he's just so uh, he can act out so quickly. So he's interested. He wants a punk. And this young guy comes in. And so Carl goes because Carl's going to uh, get him uh, sexually. He's going to win him over, frightening, him, intimidating. Him. He's going to make him his punk. And he goes over and he says, where'd you kick in from? And the guy says, uh, I kicked in from a state joint. Okay, there's only two reasons why a state prisoner goes to a federal prison. He's either such a mean son of a bitch that they can't handle him, or he's a child molester. He's done some kind of sex crime that, and Carl goes, oh, I could tell he was not a hardcore guy. So he backed off. Why? Because guys who are like pedophiles who hit the federal system become snitches. Why do they become snitches? Because the correctional officers go to him and say, hey, if we tell everybody who you are, they're going to kill you. So you're going to give us information or we'll tell everybody who you are. So there you go. So Carl stays away from him because he knows. And sure enough, three, four months later, the guy gets busted with uh, the person who had punked him out and both of them go away. It's that it's that world is so, you know, so different from ours. I I told you earlier, a guy said to me when I was in the prison, he said, and they knew I was a reporter, and I'd go out and spend eight, nine, 10 hours there. I didn't have anything else to do. And I had to spend one day with the correctional officers and one the next day with the prisoners. Why? Because both sides are paranoid. Both are worried about the other. So if they saw me walking down the hall, talking to correctional officers, then the next day. the cell block gets busted for a raid. They go, oh, did that reporter tell them? And vice versa, if I'm with the inmates and they're laughing, the correctional officers raid a a cell house, check for shanks, and there are none there, oh, did the reporter tell them? So I had to be but one quick story here. I had to learn the lingo. When I was with a prisoner, I called them a convict and I called the correctional officers guards. When you're with the prisoner, when you're with the correctional officer, you called the correctional officer, correctional officer, and you called them uh, uh, inmates. And that was just kind of the code. It was all about respect as, as as well as I can. But one one last thing here, Jeff. They could tell, you can tell someone who's been in a joint before, a hardcore joint. One of the guys said to me, oh, I knew you were weak when you walked in. I said, how did you know that? He said, I knew before you even talked. And I said, how did you know that? And he said, you're white. You saw some black guys. They nodded at you. You nodded back. In this environment, those people don't exist. The fact that you nodded meant that you wanted to be friends. Why would you want to be friends with those people? It's because you're scared of them, so you're weak. I mean, that's the,
1: just the subtle world you're in, in this violent atmosphere. And that's another thing about our regular world where we all essentially coexist, right? There it's about you are with your own people. And it's not a, generally it's not a racial thing. You know, most of these people are not white supremacists, even, you know, some could be, but essentially it's, you, you hang with your people, right? Blacks hang with blacks, whites hang with whites, mexicans hang with mexicans italians hang with italians everyone has their own car if you will right um and you know they're all very attentive aren't they these people these um these inmates right they're 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 great at they would be great poker players i think they have the ability to spot tells very quickly right they can well for your survival you know it's funny he didn't even have you speak to him and he knew that's he, he's never been here before. People say, how
2: do you know who's in the Mexican Mafia? How do you know who's in the Aryan Brotherhood? How do you know who's in the uh, what was then called the D.C. Blacks? All you had to do was walk in the mess hall. They all sat together. Right. Now, you know, 80, 85% of guys who go to prison just want to do their time and get out. 85% of correction officers just want to do their job and go home safe every night. 15% on both sides. It's a mirror. Are the troublemakers. On mm-hmm. uh, 15%, you got the guys dealing dope, pressuring people for sex, pressuring girlfriends to bring in dope, all that kind of stuff, setting up hits, all those kind of things. Uh, on the correctional side, you needed 15%. These were the guys who were like the super cops. When a guy has covered himself with butter and he's thrown water all over the bed, ba- itself make it slippery. And he's broken a mop handle. And he's saying, come on in here. I'm going to kill you. Son of a bitches. You need somebody who's going to step forward and say, Oh yeah, I'd like to go in there. I'll take mm-hmm. that guy out, you know? And, uh, that's just, that's the way it is. And it, What's interesting is if you eliminate that 15%, which is what the Bureau did, which got it in trouble in Marion, is they said, okay, we're going to take that 15% out. We're going to identify the real troublemakers, the worst of the worst. So we're going to move them out of there. And you know what happened? A new 15% emerged because they said, hey, now I'm the toughest guy on this block. I'm going to take charge. So.
1: I want to talk a little before we get into Silverstein about just for people that don't know the levels of federal prison, just right. kind of the history. You talked about Leavenworth, right? Marion. Right. When you're out there in the eighties, these are the the top joints. These are the end of the line max type of super max until then though, Alcatraz was your, your top right. level, right? In the sixties that, that right. would close. They then create Marion. Um, and today you have, Essentially five different levels, right? You have your your camp, you have your low, you have your medium, you have your high, you have your USP, and then you have your admax, which is yeah. your Florence, Colorado. That's where right. your El Chapo's, your Ramsey right. you And we'll talk a little bit about AdMax today. People, you wouldn't believe the amount of questions I get about ADX. People yeah. are fascinated by it, but it's a mystery. Yeah, and and because no one's really ever been there outside of people that have housed there. But we talked about um, the Aryan Brotherhood during the Barry Mills John Gotti episode we did a couple of weeks ago and what I found interesting about Mills and, and Bingham and, and people like Tom Silverstein is none of them came into prison for life right they all came in for like a bank robbery or or something along those lines and through their sheer brutality and depravity inside prison they became lifers who this was their life and that was what they were going to do and they were going to create, their own personality in prison. I want to start at the beginning with Silverstein because you know him probably unlike anyone else really outside of his family.
2: 33 years. Yeah.
1: Yeah. A long time. Tom Silverstein, this is him at a much younger age. This was when he was arrested in 1975, was actually born in 1952 in Long Beach, California. As you said, like a lot of uh, Aryan Brotherhood individuals, they were born in California By age 14, he's in the California Youth Authority. He's already in the system. I want to read a quote out of your book, and this came directly from from Silverstein. He would say about his childhood, as a kid, mama drilled into me, and rightly so, never rat. As a delinquent, when picking me up from the cop shop, the first thing she'd ask after slapping the piss out of me was not if I did it, but did I keep my mouth shut as taught now, I would learn about Tom Silverstein's mother from your book, that she was a pretty brutal woman, and we can maybe uncover some of the issues with Tom's life it came from his childhood. Um, tell me a little bit about his mother, what, what kind of woman she was, and what what kind of life Tom had as a, a kid.
2: Well, Virginia was mean, and uh, she was extremely physical, uh, and one of the first memories of he had was he had wet the bed. So how did she respond? She made him drink his own pee, pee in a cup and drink it to teach him not to do that. He was beaten uh, regularly. One time he was coming home from school. He was like, uh, I don't know, third, fourth grade. And a kid uh, hit him and he ran home to her and she hit him. Then she drove him over and where the kid was and told, grabbed the kid and told Tom to beat him up. Learn more
1: at cbp.gov slash careers.
2: And he did. And then when that kid went home and uh, complained to uh, his father, uh, and the father started to raise hell, Virginia went over, uh, he yelled, screamed at him, and threw bricks Brooks through the window. But she was extremely physically uh, abusive. Uh, he, At one point, uh, he describes... And I got to tell you, for 33 years, I knew Tom and we exchanged a lot of letters, a lot of phone calls. And I was trying to help him write his autobiography when he died in 2019. So a lot of what he had written, i taken and incorporated into No Human Contact. And he writes about how he's uh, a little, he's, you know, he's like 10 or 11 and he gets a shotgun and he goes in and he's going to kill both of his, uh, his mother and his stepfather. Um. And he pulls the trigger and it doesn't go off. But this was the environment he was in. Uh, Very brutal. And it was interesting because Tom later mimics a lot of that behavior. His first uh, uh, wife, who's just a lovely lady, uh, he beat her. And he said, I had no problem beating women because a woman had always beaten me. So it's this environment. One of the things I'd like to mention, if you don't mind, Jeff, is, you know, we're all we're all react to where our culture is now when if you talk to David Ward who's the expert on Alcatraz he would tell you the inmates there uh, all they worried about was getting out and it was the strongest inmate ran the prison and because there were so many of them were strong it was when it shifted was when Tom Silverstein hit the system now Tom got busted with his birth father and an uncle robbing banks okay? So he had already committed a number of crimes. He'd gotten into drugs, etc. But he entered San Quentin right during the race wars, and the race wars mimicked society. You know, you had uh, uh, protests outside, you had the cities burning, you had the assassinations, and that's where the racial element really became huge inside prisons. But the other important thing was the emergence of gangs. Mm-hmm. Alcohol, alcohol, Alcatraz didn't have gangs. Every, the the inmates were more individuals. By the time Silverstein hit, it was all about gangs. And that is uh, explains somewhat of what he came out. Sorry, I wandered away from. Britain. No, no, totally fine. She I, is, uh, she, she was a nightmare. And, uh, and he had no
1: real, from what I've gathered, he had no real, because his father was in prison his, his right. biological father Thomas right. Conway he was in Oklahoma Department of Corrections and all these right. different places and i, I want to mention something because a lot of people will listen to this and they'll hear Aryan Brotherhood right, right. they'll hear Silverstein sounds jewish right, right. um Sid Silverstein his stepfather right. was right. jewish i believe right he
2: was absolutely
1: but so tom what, didn't adopt so, a jewish tendency
2: so what happened was that his mother and his birth father both wanted to be actors and Virginia apparently was a pretty good looking lady. And she claimed that Paul Newman flirted with her and all this, but they became celebrities in the tabloids and Hollywood's because of what they did to each other. Uh, He beat her unconscious. They made the news. She ran him over and hit him with a car. They made the news they were constantly in and out of court. And there's a wonderful scene that I was able to track down and have photos of where she's accused of trying to murder him because she hit him with a car during a fight. He's accused of, of assault because he beat her senseless. And they're in the courtroom and they're yelling and screaming and and uh, uh, Virginia passes out and all this dramatic stuff. And the judge basically sends them out. And in the hallways, right before the elevator opens with the paparazzi around, she throws her arm around him and they kiss and and they have this scene where they then are taken away. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, it's, it's yeah. like Bonnie and Clyde, you know?
1: Right. Do you believe it What maybe was, was maybe they both had some sort of mental disorder and they believed that they were just acting out a, a you know, like almost um like we see today, like on these different social media sites, people pretend to be like dramatic or for clicks or or things like that. Do you think they maybe they were ahead of their time? Do you think she was actually (laughs) really? uh...
2: Well, they wanted to be
1: famous. They both became famous. It sounds like they ended up, it ended up working almost where they.
2: What happened then was she married Sid and he's a good hardworking guy. They have two more children together. Uh, Those two did not end up in jail and prison. Uh, But you mentioned how uh, Silverstein uh, mother told him never to rat. What's interesting about that story is that she, the FBI shows up and they have photos of the bank robber and they show them to, and Virginia doesn't say anything. Then when they leave, Sid says, look, we're, we can't protect him anymore. You know, we have other children to take care of. And so she calls, she rats out. She rats out on her own son, gets him arrested. Then she calls up to see if there's a reward. So this was wow. the kind of person she was. Yeah, she, I mean, seemed to say, she never forgave her, by the way.
1: She seemed a bit fame hungry, uh, kind of a, a manipulator, surely. Right. And, you know, I guess I'll ask quickly, did she beat her other kids or was it just Tom? No, he, you know. Because he really, her other kids seemed to turn out like yeah, normal, right?
2: He, uh, he stepped in. Sid was a mitigating factor. But also Silverstein reached an age and perhaps this taught her a lesson where he was able to fight back and violence begets violence and he knocks it unconscious. And so I think maybe that tapered tapered it down when it, when it came to the the other, other children. She also was older. I mean, Silverstein claimed she was a drunk and uh, his childhood friends, when I tracked down, I mean, this was just the environment. And, and Clayton Fountain, the other Aaron uh, brother, he was an Aaron brother wannabe who, who later becomes a, a, a running mate with Silverstein. He had just as equally as horrible childhood. Right. But what's frust- what's inter- interesting, mm-hmm. Jeff, is that I remember sitting in the bleachers in the yard at Leavenworth uh, with a correctional officer, a guy I really liked. And he said, yeah, all these guys have really shitty backgrounds. All of them were beaten. All of them were abused. But you know what? My mom came after me with a two by four and I didn't turn out that way. And so that's always the mystery is how can one person uh, come out of this environment and be one way and the other one go the other way?
1: You know, I've actually talked with this before in my own personal life. My father had and this is something him and I talk about all the time because I've noticed in like the mafia and some of these other uh, groups, the Aaron Brotherhood they all have these childhoods. And I look at my own father and I say, well, he had arguably the worst and he didn't turn out to be like this. Right. I guess it's really just about your own fortitude, right? You, you just, you, you do know right and wrong in the end and you can go one way or another, but it's really a fascinating case study as to why, you know, why does someone become an Aryan Brotherhood? Why does someone go become a, a Mafia Don? Or why does one person go become a, a right. construction tycoon? You right. know. Right. It's,
2: it's, I mean, it's the famous Whitey Bulger case. You know, his brother runs a college and he... Yeah, but was, cool. yeah. With Silverstein, it's very, cool. very interesting because he has a shitty childhood. He gets involved early on in the criminal justice system. Uh, he describes how uh, uh, young men who didn't fight back got raped and how, you know, he ended up in the hole for fighting, but that was to protect himself, et cetera, et cetera. He gets out. Uh, he marries uh, a, a wonderful woman uh, who's a good friend of mine now. And um, there, she gets pregnant and there's a moment in his life when he's working, a baby's on the way and he has a choice and he chooses the outlaw side. And mm-hmm. he said, you know, I always, my dad was an outlaw. I wanted, you know, to be like my dad, but he makes a conscious choice to go with drugs and, and stealing and everything else. And of course she flees from him because he tends to get more violent, more violent. She, he tries to kill her at one point. So she gets out of there with the kids, but he had a chance to go straight and he didn't do it.
1: Right. And uh,
2: it was a pivotal
1: moment. And it was, and this was, you know, around his late teens, early twenties, right. He, um, you know, he, he, he gets out of prison after four years for the armed robberies. And then he meets up with his biological father, who probably is the reason he became what he became. Right. They start robbing banks. I think they made up with, you know, 50K in today's uh, inflation. Right. Not a good amount of money, but not, right. not that much, especially when you're dealing with three people. Right. Um, so he gets 15 years and this is where he sent to Leavenworth. Right. Because when you commit a bank robbery, that is a federal crime and they're going to send you're you. You're going to get
2: 15 They don't mess with you. Yeah, he did. He got got four years at San Quentin, and that's really where he met the Aryan Brotherhood.
1: Right, and And, you mentioned some of the racial things, because the Aryan Brotherhood's is essentially created in the the, the 60s, but it becomes very prominent in the 70s during what you talked about with the race wars. And you, he goes to Leavenworth, and this is where he never sees the light of day again because he's involved with murders. And by the early 80s, he gets... A cellmate this guy edgar heavily right this right. um california guy as well ab connected and these guys were down the road heavily became a high-ranking shot caller in the Iron yep. brotherhood
2: he's um, the ABX, right?
1: correct yeah. correct so he's in leavenworth which at the time is the top level essentially uh, becomes affiliated starts making calls inside leavenworth this is silverstein um, becomes affiliated with all these people and in 1979, he's accused of killing a person called Danny Atwell. Now, from your book, you would essentially say that Atwell was a mule, right? He was Correct. he was moving drugs through his girlfriend in and out of prison. Correct. Did Atwell stop doing that? What? What? And, and Silverstein claims he didn't kill Atwell. Right. And Silverstein was charged, and the case was so
2: prejudiced against him. Uh, you know, I think the real reason why Atwell was killed is explained in my book because I talked to people who knew him at the time, inmates who were there, et cetera. Uh, what you have to understand about prison is the, the the snitches. If somebody comes to me and says, you know, a guy confessed in prison, with my experience, I'd say that's bullshit. Uh, you know, yes, guys do talk in prison, but nine times out of 10, that person's just read about the case, knows about the case, and is trying to get stuff off. And Atwell was a typical a typical case like that. So Atwell ends up dead. Uh, uh, two guards uh, claim that they heard uh, in his dying breath that, uh, you know, that he said Tom Silverstein did it. And uh, those guards are later discredited. Uh, the case actually gets thrown out on appeal, but by that time it's too late. He's already been shipped to Marion uh, with the worst of the worst. What's interesting about the Atwell case is that um, the two guys who testify against him—one um, is a shotgun guard, who uh, someone who um, who in Arkansas. Sorry, this dog's barking behind me. Sorry about that. Must be a
1: mailman or something.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's my son's dog. And uh, the other one uh, didn't know know about the – who made up the case so he could get out to – they promised him he could go to a city facility, and then he escaped from there. So, uh, you know. Do you believe he killed Danny Atwell? You know, I don't know. he claimed he didn't, and he had no reason to lie about that because when, by the time I met him, he'd already admitted to these other murders.
1: Right, so it was and redundant.
2: So why, and he was indignant about that because he felt like he had a life, he was going to get out, he was going to make it back out on the streets, and he got nailed on the at work, at, well murder because of two snitches and guards that lied. Okay? So. So he then gets shipped to Marion. Mm -hmm. And by the time the justice system looks at the case and says, yeah, a lot of this is BS.
1: He had already throws
2: it out. It was too late because then he'd already been killed on these racial cases. Right.
1: Uh, So let me let me just kind of put a bow. So he's convicted of killing Atwell, Okay, gets life because he's he's never getting out again. He has made his bed and he's got to sleep in it. Leavenworth is one step below Marion. Right. Right. At the time, Marion is the most secure prison in America in the federal system. He gets sent to Marion, okay? Goes to something called the control unit, which right. is essentially the place where the 15% you talked about go. The worst of the worst go because they can't be controlled by anybody else, so they go to the control unit. Around this time, the Aryan Brotherhood is beefing with a group called the D.C. Blacks. D.C. Blacks were a black group who uh, you know, held shot call over every other black inmate in the system. Another murder happens in 1981, a guy called Robert Chappelle, a black inmate. Now Silverstein would also claim he didn't kill this individual either. Um, But this sets up a domino effect because he kills Chappelle or allegedly kills Chappelle, gets another life sentence. The shot caller of the DC blacks, Cadillac Smith, gets wind of what happened. He wants to kill Silverstein.
2: Yeah, he was related to Chappelle.
1: Right. Silverstein is, you know, I guess boasting or whatever. And Smith wants him dead. He finds out that Smith wants him dead. So what does Silverstein do? Stabs him sixty-seven times. Parades his body up and down the unit. Tried and that's the word he actually head. can get.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I tried to cut it. It's one of the best parts of the book because it shows the planning. It, Okay, so Chappelle is murdered, and supposedly that's a gangland hit that he had insulted a member. This is what's interesting about the whole racism thing is, yeah, racism is prevalent in the federal system. Uh, but the Aryan Brotherhoods associated with the Mexican mafia. Sure.
1: And, uh, you know, so. <laughs> Let me ask you something real quick. I've asked you this off the record, and I want to ask you on the record. Because uh, this is a thing that I get, talk- people talk to me about this all the time. Is the Aryan Brotherhood a white supremacist organization? And I always say, I don't believe they are. Are there some people in the Aryan Brotherhood that are racist? Probably. Um, but do I believe they're engaged in, we're not, like, I always it to, have you ever seen American History X? Yes. Okay, so in the film, Edward Norton's character is a white supremacist, right? Correct. He goes to California DOC and realizes that he's a true white supremacist and that these people that call themselves Aryan Brotherhood are, are not actually racist. They'll do business with everyone. And he almost is upset. Why are you doing business with these people? And he ultimately gets raped for it, right? Because for them, it's about business, right? Pete, it, 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 you wouldn't say that most of these people are down and out white supremacists. It's well,
2: just- you're talking about levels. And when it comes to racism, I guess it's yeah. like being... Pregnant, you're not. You're either. Yeah, you're either.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you're
2: either not. But you're in a racist environment. I think what we have to drawing, be like that. You're well. you're drawing the distinction, and it's an important one of is it racism because it's pure hatred of another race, or is it racism because of conditions in prisons where you have to go up with your own side? And what is the main focus the Aryan Brotherhood? And the main focus the Aryan Brotherhood is making money.
1: And, and that's uh, what I'm trying to that's say. That's what DC. it's about: dealing
2: drugs, and in doing that, yes, they run into DC blacks, and there's that you know. But Silverstein later uh, uh, describes how he he never had trouble with blacks, even though he was a member of the Aryan Brotherhood because it was a matter of respect. And so that's different than what you're talking. But you also have to really another name you mentioned because you're you know all these folks John Greshner. Uh, who was running with Barry Mills, who's still alive. He's in a state joint in Colorado hidden because he broke away from the uh, Aryan Brotherhood. But he's the one who really pushed the whole racist thing because it was a way you have to understand with the Aryan Brotherhood, what made them different was they realized they would never, whites would never be in a majority in a prison setting because of racism, et cetera. They're more black. There's more minority. And so they always failed because and you, you can read about that. The Aaron Brotherhood will say white guys don't protect their own. They're just glad that it's not happening to them. So the Aaron Brotherhood did the opposite. The Mexican Mafia, everybody else, black, D.C. Blacks, let's get as many members as we can. And we'll overpower. And the Aryan Brotherhood in the, in the 70s and 80s attitude was we're going to kill anybody who even mentions our name. And so they got a limited number of guys, but those guys were ruthless. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even when I was in Leavenworth, people were afraid to say the words Aryan Brotherhood. And that was in the 80s because they didn't want to get killed. And so it was a matter of being so ferocious. And that's what Silverstein got into. What's interesting, getting it back to what you were talking about, is so Chappelle gets killed, he gets strangled, he's laying in his cell. It's an interesting story. He's watching TV, and somebody gets out in the rec area and they slip a garrote around his neck and they strangle him, right? So he is related to Cadillac Smith, Silverstein, and Clay Fountain. Get nailed for that one. They committed the murder. They deny it, but they committed it. Cadillac then is put on the very same tier in this very same uh, cell block as Silverstein and these guys. And Cadillac uh, shoots a zip gun at him. He's he's trying to he's trying to he told them, I'm going to kill both you guys. And so then they get shanked. And they actually work for months to get out of a rec cell and they break through and they bust through there and they confront him. And he has uh, a shank himself. Uh, it's pretty interesting in the, in the most controlled area of the prison, everybody's strapped. Everybody has a shank. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. To it. So then they get into it. He stabs him. He tried to cut off his head and he drags him up and down and, you know, uh, one thing I don't know if your readers realize, but in the Federal Bureau system, they don't wear sidearms. They don't, They you know, they don't have weapons. The idea is that you'll hit triple deuces, which is the alarm, and everybody will run in and overwhelm you with correctional officers. And at best, they'll have nightsticks, right? Well, you know, I've seen guys do it. I've seen some great correctional officers break up a knife fight. But most of the time, you're not going to go in there when you have Cadillac Smith and Clay Fout and Silverstein stabbing each other. You're not going to open the gate and go running in and say, stop, guys, stop. You're going to end up dead. So when you wait is for an opportunity to reach through the bars, clock them on the head, or you wait until, you know, I'm sorry, but they just wait until they kill each other. I mean, yeah, nobody, wants to, nobody wants to lose his life when you have these convicted murderers. And Cadillac Smith was a known rapist, et cetera, prison rapist. Uh, so the question Silverstein always posed to us in the entire federal bureau system, you know, I just got found guilty of killing his cousin. Why would you put him right next to us on the same cell block? And I've always thought that was a valid point.
1: It and is a very silver valid
2: point. silverstein's answer is because you wanted us all to kill each other.
1: Well, I remember um, I heard I forget the guy's name. He has a, a channel on YouTube. He talked about the guy, Walter Johnson, who uh, allegedly uh, beat up John Gotti he talked about him as his most dangerous inmate he had ever encountered like he was this like gigantic individual that like you're not going to run in on and try to like disarm him you know he's just right. going to do what he does these are the most dangerous people in america arguably right and you made a good point about why put them on the tier together and almost you know if you put a you know you put a, a you know, an animal that's hungry, uh, you, you throw something in on them, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna go right. at it. Right. Um, so this is now several murders he's committed. One of which he, we knew he committed, which is Cadillac Smith. He, you know, there's really nowhere else to put him, right. He's still in control unit cause there's nowhere else to go. He's at right. the end of the line. Right. Um, that would take us to October of 1983. And this is, Really uh I've talked about this on other social media. This was a, a an iconic day in a bad way for the federal no. prison system because at the time ADX was a patch of grass. It was farmland. Right. It was it, There were no was,
2: supermaxes. No. This was
1: as close as it came. And this made the government and the BOP decide, "Hey, we need to do more it. here." Right? Yeah,
2: the thing Jeff was they had no death penalty. So mm-hmm. uh Silverstein becomes convinced that uh, Merle Klutz, a longtime veteran officer, he was supposed to rotate in and out, but they were, this was such a poorly managed prison that he was one of the figures they just kept in there month after month after month because he was not intimidated by the inmates who were spending all their time lifting weights, doing exercises, getting beefed up. You know, they're more intimidating. And Silverstein becomes convinced that he gets in it one-on-one with these guys uh, and it becomes personal. And so everybody, even the guys who are close to him say, don't, don't kill a guard. Don't kill a guard. Don't you're going to do, you'll never get out, you know, Um, but he can't stand it. And so he uh, uh, goes to get a shower. Uh, They have by this time, there's supposed to be three officers escorting him. He's supposed to be handcuffed. He's coming back. He sticks his handcuff cells through with an Aryan Brotherhood member, unlocks the cuffs, pulls out a shank, says, it's not between the other two guys who immediately start to run. It's me and Klutz goes and stabs him to death, brutally stabs him to death. Um, You know, I ask not to be facetious, but I asked Silverstein, why did you stab these guys so many times? And uh, he looked at me and he said, well, I wanted to make sure they were dead. And, you know, um, he he then, the Bureau of Prisons, Norm Carlson, is faced with this horrible choice. He says, these guys are killing in prison. They have no respect for life. Uh, we can't have it. And there's no federal death penalty. So he argues for the creation of the Supermax prison. But what's interesting, it, from my point of view, with Silverstein is, He and Foutner Silverstein sent to Atlanta. He's put in a cell the size of a King mattress. He's stripped down to his shorts. The walls are white. The lights are on 24 hours a day. And he has no human contact because Norm Carlson says, we got to make it so awful that nobody wants to do this. And this is different than solitary. This is completely cut off. No letters, no magazines, no television, no radio, nothing. You're like in entombed in this cell and no one would talk to him um, because out of respect to the, the guards. So for nine months, he's sitting in the cell with only his mind to occupy his time. And that to me was fascinating because all of us would say, well, what w- how would we handle that? What, w- what would we do? How would we survive? Now what's interesting is they started Jeff giving him more privileges. Why? Not out of kindness, you can't control someone when you take everything away from them. In the hand, a food tray through and say, give it back. And he'd say, you know, F you. What are you going to do? <laughs> and you've, you've, you have to provide me with a certain amount of space, air and food. So, you know, this was this was a way of, of punishing him and then keeping him isolated. And that's what fascinated me about how he survived that.
1: When you talk about his time at Atlanta, that's his first, th- this is once he kills Klutz, this is the, when his life changes exponentially, right? You discussed the no human contact. They put him and you would talk about this. They put him essentially in a, in a basement, right? Like a, like a little area where they created it on the, on the fly. It seemed like, right. Hey, we have no else to put him. Let's just go put him down there. And he's there for about four years until 1987. Yeah. He then goes to Leavenworth, right? right? Which this is where he would spend a, a lot of time, spent about 18 years in Leavenworth. And he was in two different cells, I believe. One of right. which was something they called the Silverstein Suite. And this is where I think you create contact with him. How did that happen? Well, I met him in, when he
2: was in the dungeon. And again, I don't think, the I think the warden thought I could go see anyone. So he never asked. And I think the Quinlan, I was directing the Bureau of Prisons, didn't necessarily intend for me to go see.
1: But how does that happen? I guess. Do you hear about this guy? Oh, yeah. Uh,
2: At that time, when when I was in Leavenworth wandering around, uh, Dallas Scott, I met Dallas Scott, who was a member of the Aryan Brotherhood. And it was it was interesting because once I was seen walking with him, uh, the black inmates uh, didn't want to talk to me but I had access to this hardcore criminal and they talked about Tommy and what a great, I mean, in their eyes, Tommy Silverstein was this mythical Jesus Christ figure. And in the correctional officer side, he was the Satan, the worst person ever. And they had him in a dungeon cell buried in the bowels of Leavenworth. And when I went down, they said to me, Oh, don't wear, wear a clip on tie. Don't wear a tie. Cause it reach through the bars and strangle you. Well, you know, they took me down and they opened all these doors and, it was interesting because he's in a steel cage type cell and there's another bar in front of me and they open the bars and they put me in there and they lock it. And I'm all pumped up because this guy is so notorious. And this meek kind of mild guy just kind of merges. And he says, uh, you know, uh, I'm having trouble talking and uh, because my thoughts can't keep up with my mouth. I, I'm not used to talking. And then there's this buzz in there. And he says, look, and the lights are neon and they're buzzing. And that was his world. And there was a phone there that the correction officers could use. And people would call down at all hours, ringing the phone to keep him awake. Until I went to see him, he only got cold water. And then I mentioned that and they said, oh, that's a mistake. I mean, it was, they hoped he'd kill himself. They absolutely hoped he'd kill himself. I mean, And, and." you know, that was that was the reality. And that's what they used. The 83 killings of Klutz and the other officer, Hoffman, is what Norm Carlson used to get Congress to authorize the ADX, uh, which is now there's over uh, 40 states have supermax prisons. They've all copied the ADX. People are locked up for 23 hours a day in solitary confinement. The ADX, uh, these cells have poured concrete, there's the regular bars and then there's a steel door so you can be cut off completely. And uh, you know, you're, you're isolated. Uh, and that's because of Silverstein and Fountain and, and Silverstein eventually ends up at the ADX.
1: Let me ask you, um, you mentioned kind of a, I mean, it sounds like a, I mean, I'm not saying it, it it's fascinating, but it almost is. I mean, you go down and see this guy who, you know, he's, Essentially forgotten, right? People are walking up over top of him. I mean, what is that? What's the environment? What does it smell like? What is it? Um, like I'm trying to paint the picture in in someone's head of like it's a steel cell. Does he look like this at the time? Is that what he looks like?
2: Yeah, because they well, they wouldn't give him a razor, they wouldn't give him a mirror, wouldn't give him a comb. Um, you know, and he'd talk about how mice would run around the cell and cockroaches, and there wasn't. You know, it was just the old institutional smell. But also, you know, they had cameras on him 24 hours a day. He had, he talks about how he had really bad hemorrhoids and how it was humiliating because there was a camera right above. Uh, You know, he'd get food that people had messed with. I mean, he was, he was living, he was living in an environment that most of us could never have survived in. And this he is- did consider suicide at one point. It's interesting. People talk about love. Oh, you know, I love my country. I love someone. And that's what keeps me going. Well, hate kept him going. Hate and, and, and hate towards the BOP. I'm not going to be broken. And then as they gave him more privileges, and eventually he was able to write, he developed a real following. And he became a really highly skilled artist uh and then he got into yoga and he got into buddhism and it was this interesting that he found a purpose in his life even though he was in these this horrible and of course he had a lot of women writing to him so there you go
1: yeah and i want to i'm going to get into that in a second i i I just kind of want to put this into perspective i mean for, for 18 years he was in leavenworth in these conditions that's just under 6,600 days. that That's not a month. That's not a month or two that think about the, the, the where that does in your mind, your, I mean, it's look, regardless of what you have to say about Tom Silverstein, look, is he a depraved killer? Absolutely. Is he someone who has cost this country probably billions of dollars? Absolutely. But he is a guy whose mental fortitude. You have to look at and, 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 kind Of be enamored by a bit, right? I mean, that's well, even
2: the correctional officers at one point told him they didn't know how he survived. He was in the dungeon cell, never seeing light of day. And then they built a special suite, Silverstein suite, yes. as you mentioned, that was at the end of the control unit. And then it had two cells, and one the door would open, and you could go out, and it had a he could out see the sky up there. But he was always in isolation. The only people who would, uh, uh, he The only people would, none of the correction officers wanted to talk to him. And the only person who'd come talk to him was the prison shrink. And the psychiatrist would come down and Silverstein would say, what kind of person are you? Do not do something. This is torture, blah, blah, blah. And the psychiatrist would go back and write, he's perfectly sane because he's complaining about the conditions in his cell. So it was a catch-22. And I would
1: think he probably, the psychiatrist, nobody wants to get, you know, Fired right, I right. Mean, so it's you kind of well, and 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 that's something I remember I've heard. Um, that he he eventually just stopped talking to them because right. he said, This is stupid. They're not, right, they're not actually doing it. But as right. you said, they would begin to give him some more privileges, and he becomes an artist, right? He, right. from what I understand, drew this, right? Uh, I mean, absolutely, that's, that's one of it. the
2: drawings he sent me. You know, it's interesting. I asked him how he survived. There's two interesting stories that have never, never been told about him. And when he's in Atlanta, when he's in this cell for nine months with nothing but his underwear, you know, he he's he practiced what he called mind travel, which I think is interesting. And I've heard other people in solitary. He first of all he had a routine. He could tell the time of day by when they served his food to him. Okay, because the lights are on 24 hours a day, which in itself is torture. So. He'd have his breakfast and then he'd do exercises. This guy would do 2,000 push-ups, 2,000 sets of 100, 2,000 setups. Then by lunchtime, he'd eat his lunch. Then he'd lay down and he said, mind travel. Now, what is mind travel? Mind travel is, okay, I was interviewed by Jeff today on this wonderful podcast, but it's not just that. It's what did Jeff look like? What was he wearing? What were the photos behind him? What questions did he have? where you relive a moment in your life in Silverstein's case, it would be pleasurable moments where, you know, he's having sex with a girlfriend, but you'd relive it in your mind.
1: Every minute moment,
2: by every detail, go over and over and over. And then it was dinner. And then, you know, but, and I also knew guys who were in solitary confinement who'd like take a picture of Mount Everest and put it up and figure out how many feet it was. And then they, They'd walk so many steps and just like a runner crossing the government, you know, uh, or runner crossing the country, marking off, oh, today I'm in Iowa and, you know, this kind of thing. So he found a way to survive that way.
1: HBO did a, um, and I don't know if you've ever seen it. I, I would highly recommend if you haven't seen it to check it out. They did a documentary called Red Onion, I believe it was called. Yeah, in, in Virginia. Bruce. Yeah, where, where they went into this. You know, similar location, and right. they talked to this one guy about how, like, what isolation does to him, and he and he had this quote where he says, "You know, people say they would love to be alone, right? right. You know, but I don't think they've ever actually been alone because when you're alone, all you have is your thoughts, and right. it's truly frightening, right? And I remember when the coronavirus pandemic happened, we'd hear all these people talk about how they don't want to stay home and watch TV for a couple of months, and, and they commented about how brutal it was. And I, I remember, I, I, I thought about people like Silverstein. And I think like, this is someone that did this for like 20 years. Yeah. Like the the minute, like monotony of that is. But is
2: you know, Jeff, what's interesting. And I could show you. So later on when he's in the Silverstein suite, he's allowed to correspond and write. So he sends me a letter. It's handwritten. It's 22 pages long. And at the end of it, he says it's 2 AM. It's around two o'clock in the morning. Uh, and, uh, cause this, by this time he was allowed to have a clock and, but and I need to get to bed, but I got so much to do now. What the hell do you do? When yeah, you're like- but he also said to me once, when I first met him, he said, uh, you want to know what my life is like? He said, you staying in a motel. And I said, yeah, I don't, you know, I'm not pretending to be a convict. I'm not pretending to be a guard. Uh, you know, he says, go back to your motel tonight, go in the bathroom, shut the door. And see how long you can just sit there alone.
1: Man. <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's About so ten funny. minutes Now, it's granted, so funny.
2: he had grown up dealing with solitary yeah. confinement. It's not the first time he'd been in it. All that kind of stuff. So, you know, he had. It's like you and I have never been in solitary confinement, you know. So he had grown up with some of that. But still, you know,
1: year so- after
2: year. I want to relate
1: this to what you just said. Okay. So I have a cleaning lady that comes here, right? She does a deep clean every two weeks or so. And I have an office right here, fairly large. You know, I got a computer, I got everything, TV, whatever I want in here, books, phones, whatever. She takes about two hours to clean my apartment. Right. And by the end of the two hours, I'm thinking I got to get out of here. Like I don't have every, I have everything I could want here. I got a beautiful view. I, you know, it's, it's amazing to think about it It, and you're right it's i would would tell anyone go into a bathroom and sit there and see if you can last five minutes right right and you have a phone you have a you know a cup of coffee like whatever you want like it's it's amazing to think about but so eventually he gets more privileges he by 2005 the adx had been constructed right this monstrosity of a facility and You know, maybe at some point we'll get you back on and we'll do a show about the ADX. Um, I think your most interesting part of your book is when you talk about his, when he gets the news that he's leaving Leavenworth to go to ADX. And initially the thought was they were going to fly there, but then there's this moment where, okay, we're going to drive. It's about 11 hours. And there's a quote in your book where he says, I forgot how sweet freedom tasted. And he was so excited to take a a little van from Leavenworth to Colorado. And he talked about how excited he was at one point when he got to use the the men's restroom at a gas station, right? And we think about how that's an awful experience for you and I, right? Who wants to use a a men's facility? But he was just so happy to get out of a dungeon. And then he realizes how awful ADX is right Right. tell me a little bit about that
2: so what happens is that he is uh supposed to go by flight prison prison uh airplane and the plane's broken so they decide to drive and of course all the correctional officers are fussing but he loves it because they're going to drive across kansas colorado and then shoot down to florence where the adx is uh he thinks he might be going to a lesser prison but he's in the van with these guys and you know it's human nature uh, even those either tough guys, and they're all sitting there, you're riding for 10 hours together, they're talking and joking, and and he develops kind of a rapport with them. And uh, they say to him, geez, we respect you for holding out this long. And then a new new group, of, what you discover with Silverstein is uh, every time he had a new warden or there was a new, uh, 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 new change in it, all the old punishments. Everyone wanted to show they were tough on Silverstein. So they take away his art for a while and then give it back to it. That established dominance was the idea. And so the new crew meets him and they're, you know, they're just as, as tough and mean and, and personal as they can. It's interesting to read his description of that trip because this is a guy who's been locked in the basement. This is a guy who's not seen the outside world for a long time. And he marvels at kids riding bicycles and, you know, seeing people who who are walking around free. And he had no concept of computers or cell phones or any of the stuff that you and I take to granted. He, you know, even though at the ADX they're given a television, it's not like the television you and I see you're not see they have limited programs you know that they're gonna put on there stuff like religious programs it's not like you can turn on American idol and watch it you know so it it this was just going outside was such a big deal to him and it it reminds you that the the depravity of him being kept in a in a locked facility in the basement and then you know, the, what we take for granted. Um, you know, though, I get a lot of hate mail. I mean, it, it, one of the things that always puzzled me and always puzzled Silverstein was most of the guys who now are in the correctional system never met him. They don't know him. They never have had to deal with him because they're all retired, mandatory 55 in the BOP. But the, the hate lingers. And I get, when even before this book came out, I started getting emails from, he should rot in hell, you're a son of a bitch for writing about it because it's that the legend persists and you're either on the good side. You know, when I was in Leavenworth, I eventually had to get out for my own uh, mental fitness, but also because it was simply too dangerous. Um, when I went with correctional officers, they took me shooting and they had silhouettes up and they'd say, oh, let's shoot Silverstein and they're shooting the silhouette. And when I went with the um, I got so in with the convict so much I'd go into a cell and they had hooch and the thing that scared me the most was a guy who the music was in the, the cell next to me and it's really loud and that's disrespectful so the guy gets up and he gets a shank and I see him get the shank and he puts it in his waistband and he goes next door and says turn the music down and luckily the guy turns the music down and then the guy goes and hides the shank and I'm going like Oh, my God, what happens if he uses that shank to kill someone and people find out I knew about it? So you can only walk between those two people for so long. The nature of prison is to suck you on one side or suck you in the other. There is no middle ground. And Silverstein, obviously, even today, is a person who people, you know, despise hate and feel obligated to write nasty messages about.
1: Well, and, and I guess we can understand. I mean, we all know the, the thin blue line and the right. involvement of, of the officers, with whether it's a police or CO or whatever. Um, you know, and again, all we're really doing is telling a story. I deal with it all the time. I've told you this. I've dealt with families of gangsters that aren't happy the way I talk. I mean, it you, you can't make everybody happy, but we're just trying to tell a story. That's really it. Right. But, and I
2: think Silverstein's life's important because of the mm-hmm. role he played in the development of ADXs. And I think we have a legitimate discussion. What do you do with people who uh, have no problem killing people? How do yeah. you control them and how do you control them humanely?
1: And that's the thing, like, you know, you, you don't want to be too cruel and you don't want to break the eighth amendment and things like that. But you almost say to yourself, I mean, these people completely uh, exploit these laws. They, we have nowhere else to go with them. We have built these monstrosities, these facilities, where do you go with, where do you go with punishment? Because you can't be too nice, but you also can't be too barbaric either. So Tom Silverstein goes to ADX, right? And I guess the goal of him at this point, and he's talked about this, was he knew he was never getting out of prison. He just wanted to live life just like any other inmate. He had said, you know, by this point, he's an old man. I mean, he's he's in his, you know, late fifties, early sixties. And I'm not saying that's old, but in prison terms, that's pretty old, right? So he, um, he goes out there and he's just trying to get out of the, you know, step down essentially. He right. wants to get out of solitary, but right. he goes to ADX. They put him in range 13, which not a lot of people know about range 13. Range 13 is a, again, a prison inside of prison. It is the most lethal part of the ADX. There's only one other person on range 13 currently. Right. And that's Ramsey Youssef who Silverstein actually interacts with. He had right. talked about that in the book where he this is the first person he had ever communicated with. Let me ask you, did he actually know who Yusef was and like,
2: no, he, he didn't because he was denied access to news, but in their brief conversation, he learned. And uh, you know, what's interesting, Jeff is in the, when, so what happens is they're communicating because there's four cells together and they can, they know he first senses someone's there and it's very exciting because he hasn't had access to anybody but correctional officers who don't wanna to talk to him and the prison psychiatrist. So they, they communicate and um, they're able to do that for a while before a correctional officer who has monitors sees they're talking. And so then they go build a wall and try to separate them. But during that brief time, yeah, he asked Yusef, what did you do? And he explains what he did and a uh, uh, first attack on the World Trade Center and this kind of stuff. What's interesting is then the FBI learns about their communication. Uh, Yousef is under not, not only no human contact, but also uh, no one can meet with him, talk to him without a, a correctional person sitting right there, even his attorneys. They want to make sure he has no access. He gets no letters. He's more like a, uh, Ah uh, silverstein was when he first went to Atlanta just sealed off from the world uh, and he sits there and reads his Koran. the FBI comes in and wants to ask silverstein what um what they said and silverstein of course has the sense I'm not a rat but he also it just sees the hypocrisy in it because as far as he's concerned it's a. US government who's torturing him so why would he help want him. to help the US government so mm-hmm shows shows his thinking
1: yeah and and look as i said i mean by this point you know silverstein has abundantly made it clear that he's no longer part of the aaron brother right. he doesn't buy into that anymore he's a different person right. he just wants to live out the rest of his short years which he right. knew by this point and you know in the, the declining health that he had i mean you can't live 20 years in isolation and your right. body not feel it right. um but i want to talk quickly um before i get to him kind of suing the the federal government right i want to talk about some of the relationships that he would have um psychologists would like essentially call this habristophilia which is a sexual attraction to criminals and, and things like that and i i saw recently that that alex murdall guy in south carolina he's right. getting all these letters from from women that are, that are in love with him and Silverstein uh, did as well, didn't he? Have a relationship with a woman that was married who left her husband for him. Tell me a little bit about that. That's an interesting dynamic. Well,
2: you know, I knew him for um, thirty-three years. In fact, I, I got divorced, and my first wife always claimed it was because of my experiences at Leavenworth. But uh, and then uh, now today, I'm very happily married for twenty-five years. But during that time, we used to, you know, communicate about different women you know, and he always had two or three women uh, who were interested in him. And what would That's happen amazing. is they'd get very interested. Uh, it lasts for a year or two or three, and then they'd move on. And, and that was just the reality of it. But you got to stop and think he's sitting in a cell. He's got nothing to do, but write these really romantic, intense, and he's an interesting guy. And so Women would be attracted, you know, the bad boy, the mothering, whatever the psychology is. And, you know, he'd have these relationships. I remember, as a side note, uh, the same thing was true of Loveworth. You'd you'd go to visiting days and these women would show up to meet these guys, you know. And I asked one woman once, I said, "Um, you know, this guy's never going to get out. Why, Why do you want a relationship with him? And she said, well, my first husband cheated on me and I know where this guy is every night. You know, it's like, yeah. it, I mean, yeah.
1: it, it, but it does but yeah, make sense, it, I guess.
2: His most serious relationship near the end was a, a woman who adopted his last name, Silverstein, and uh, she was married at the time. She fell in love with him through their letters. They were both artists. Uh, Silverstein was a very jealous guy, a very demanding guy. So she left her husband to have this relationship. Uh, finally uh, got approved to actually visit him near the end of his life uh, and was madly in love with him, still is madly in love with him today. Um, he would write the last letter he sent her. She didn't open. She keeps it in the mattress under her bed. And, you know, I mean, she was, she was just enamored and fell in love with him. And so uh, it was interesting to see, she saw a side of him that, uh, you know, other people didn't see.
1: Obviously, um, you mentioned ADX is, is, you know, no one's really ever been in it. Um, wh- what was your contact with him once he goes to ADX? What, what was that like? Was it just strictly through uh, letters, you know? What we had, uh,
2: you know, when you write a book, you usually don't keep in touch with the people after you do the book. Mm-hmm. And he and another inmate were the exceptions. And I kept in contact with him and early on, it was, uh, you know, very intense writing, calling. Eventually I told him to stop. He only got a couple calls a uh, a month and I told him he'd keep missing me uh, because we couldn't set anything up because he never knew when they'd bring him the phone. So I told him, you know, use it to call your girlfriends and all this. And, but we always kept in, in constant contact and, Every Christmas, I'd send him 100 bucks. What happened after the hothouse came out was word went out that I was still talking to Silverstein. Word went out that I had sent him 100 bucks and I became persona non grata uh, with the Bureau of Prisons. Uh, officers who I'd interviewed, who I thought I had a good relationship, shunned me, wouldn't talk to me. I went up to Lewisburg, which was another high level penitentiary to see one of the inmates I'd written about uh, the fellow who was the captain there refused to come out and talk to me. And we'd spent hours and hours together. At Cause I was on the Silverstein side. I had been taken in by Silverstein.
1: But you, was, you're you just, you're trying to say, I'm not right. I don't agree with what he it's Absolutely funny, never, what never agreed with what you did. It's it funny interesting as
2: uh, Norm yeah. Carlson, who was the head of the Bureau of Prisons was a friend of mine. And I spoke at his funeral and he accepted that I was just, you know, but no, you cross that line as that that blue line.
1: It's interesting. People have this thought of like, if you write about someone or you convey right. that, that you find them fascinating, right. you're a a fan of them. And it's right. like, well, no, I'm it's just not. I'm just here to to tell right. a story. Same That's with
2: it. the podcast. Same with a yeah. podcast. Just because you may do a series on Jeffrey Lundgren doesn't mean that you think it's cool to eat people and be a serial killer. Of course. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. Well, <laughs> but, Listen, I've related it to, and I've talked about this. I've related it to back to the Gotti family. The Gotti family has a feel that I don't like them because I want to speak the truth about certain things that went on with the family. And it's like, well, I don't have it a vendetta against them. I'm just telling the story. Right. I'm telling you what really happened. Yeah. yeah. And it's, I, I think we, it's uh, a lot of, you have to be a, uh, you know, a fan of everybody. You got to hate people. And it's like, well, no, I'm just, but I'm interesting. That's all. Um, you know,
2: we we like to see, we want evil and goodness. We want goodness to be yeah. the guy with the white hat. And evil, we want to be Freddy Krueger. Yeah. And the truth is that most people are on a on a scale. And Silverstein could be a killer without remorse. He could be vicious. He could be mean. He beat up his wife. He threatened to kill her. I mean, all this kind of stuff. But on the other side of it is he was one guy who even naively was totally loyal to, uh, to a, a fellow inmate. If you became Silverstein's friend in prison, that was it. I mean, he would die for you. And that's a quality, uh, but because of the context, people see it as negative. He was a very good, I mean, friend to me and friend to others. And as soon as you say that, you're one of the bad people, but he had that capacity. I mean, we have to see people as the whole and yeah. I mean, would I want him to, uh, you know, move into my house with me? No, but I also knew who he was and accepted him for who he was.
1: Well, around 2014, uh, People started taking up a cause for Silverstein, right? You started right. seeing, you know, um, campaigns to get him out of solitary. You know, he begins there. There's a website created where people are running it. Right. Um, He eventually w- would would bring a lawsuit against the BOP for, you know, uh, breaking the Eighth Amendment against right. cruel and unusual Yeah, and it, yeah. And
2: it was very disappointing. He had. He had Laura Robner, an attorney, very fine attorney, civil rights attorney at a University of Denver, uh, and her students pursued this case. And people rallied around the National Alliance on Mental Illness, solitary groups matter, all attacking the use of solitary uh, confinement. Okay, Sorry about that. And. uh, they were really, it became a national issue because they thought this could be the case that in solitary confinement. You got to realize that we have 40,000 people right now, men, women, and children in solitary confinement. And a lot of those people have serious mental illnesses. And so they don't know where to put them. So they leave them locked up. And of course, that's the worst thing you can do with someone with a mental illness. Uh, but anyway, they file a suit and the first judge just you know, says no and they appeal it up, and they think they have a really good shot. And what's interesting about what happens is the justices shy away. They balk at actually deciding whether solitary confinement is cruel and unusual. They punt. They will not comment on it. And instead, they focus just on Silverstein. Now, this is a guy who's been locked up since 83 who uh, has, like, two shots uh Disciplinary because one time he put soap on a camera, but he has the exemplary record of not causing any trouble because he's in isolation. What's what's this gonna do, right? And they fall back on saying, "Well, we really don't know. He was a member of the Aryan Brotherhood. He was really bad before he got locked up. So we think it's up to the Bureau of Prisons to decide how best to handle him." And uh, of course, he. Deeply, deeply resents that. And it sucks the life out of him, the breath out of him, because he realizes that no matter what he does, no matter what he says, no matter how old he is, the original prediction from his buddies back in the control unit is if you kill an officer, you will never get out is true. And that he will never, ever, ever get out. And even worse, he will never be moved to a lower level level. At one point, they move him into a cell block at the ADX where he can actually hear and communicate with other inmates. But basically, he'll never see the light of day.
1: And he never did see the light of day. Tom Silverstein would die May 11th, 2019 at the age of 67. He did die in a bed. And I, you know, one thing um, that I found uh, very vivid about your book, and guys, I'm going to put how we can purchase. I, I strongly urge you to go read it. I love this book. I was very happy with it. Um, You talk about really a vivid scene about when Tom Silverstein is, is dead. They, they right. clinically medically consider him a dead and his family asks, can you remove the handcuffs. Right. And they, and wouldn't they say, no, him.
2: yeah, they aren't going to do it. And
1: it's almost the, the vividness of even in death, Right. Tom Silverstein had finally gotten to the point where he could I don't know if he's in heaven or I'm not going to say we don't know that none of us know. But he had finally, I guess, been at peace. Right. And they still wouldn't. You know, it's almost like he might be chained to his coffin. You know, it's almost like when is enough enough?
2: You know, it's just so. It was because of the legend he had become. Here's a guy who is on life support who has a, uh, uh, you know, a trach tube down his throat. He's not going anywhere.
1: Where's he going to go, right? But
2: he's chained and he always is going to be chained. And even when he dies and they say, can you take the chains off? They go, no, we're not, we're not authorized. well remember he's
1: clinically dead. He's, right. he's, he's essentially in a morgue and right. it's still, it's, and I kind of want to ask you this as we end, you know, um, you talk a little bit about the um, public's thought and, you know, I talked at the beginning about how people don't really know much about the federal prison system. I'm fascinated by it. I think it's something that people should know that's going on. And right. people don't want to know because, you know, it's another world. And if it's not happened to me, as long as it stays away from me, I don't really care. Right. I guess I'd ask you, you know, after doing all you've done on, on prison and, and you've seen close up, you're one of the only people that have seen close up the damages that it's done to people. I guess I'll ask you, do you believe in it? Do you, do you think that oh. there's a place for it in society?
2: Oh, yeah. Um, the opposite of that is I have seen people who you do not want on the streets. <laughs> Absolutely do not want on the streets. No, of course not. You have to do something with those people. The question is, is this the best way? And what you see is in the in the 60s, there's this feeling of the medical model uh, where the director of the federal bureau of prison says, look, all we have to do is teach a guy a job, uh, give him an education and give him therapy and we can cure crime. Well, it didn't work. All they ended up doing was bank robbers wrote more grammatically correct notes, you know. But what is the key to changing that behavior? And... Uh, how, why do people, some people, what you see in Silverstein that fascinates me the most is that the public doesn't realize is they think people go away to prison and then they come home and they reenter society. And in a large part, that's true. And that's what we hope for. And we hope people don't go back. But inside the Federal Bureau of Prison, inside state institutions like California is a group of people who this is their life. Prison is their life. These are the gang members that Silverstein associated with. The people who we mentioned earlier, the Dallas Scott, who couldn't live on the streets without getting in trouble. This is their environment. And how do you reach those people? Uh, I happen to think that long-term solitary confinement is, is not a solution. There should be a way to make sure they're safe and officers are safe but also try to help them better themselves. I, I do believe in redemption, but uh, you know we're, we're a long way from it. And is the ADX really the way we wanna do that? And one sad note, you know, I have a son with mental illness. I've written about that. That's a whole advocacy I have. In the book, they describe what happened to mentally ill prisoners in the ADX. And I would urge people to read that because it's disgusting uh, how people were treated, uh, and the humanity. And you see that it, not this environment, the ADX environment, not only strips the humanity from the prisoners, but also from the correctional officers.
1: But I guess as as I'll play in a way devil's advocate, and I think you would agree here, like there is a certain level of, of, of a half of 1% of the criminals in America. Most of them, if you go into a prison, whether it's state, local, or federal, most of the inmates behave fine, right? right. I mean, they, they do what they have to do, and that's that. But there's a one the, percent, the Barry Mills, the Jokar right. Sarnayevs, the Dylan Roofs, the right. Chapo Guzmans, these people are um like the like yeah. Chapo, for instance. How many times do you allow someone to escape? And where you say, You're not gonna escape anymore. Yeah. This is the end of the road, no more of that. Um, there almost has to be a place. And you know, I remember hearing about this when you know, there was a few years ago where some of these politicians, they were saying these egregious things like we should abolish federal prisons. And it's almost like, well, okay, we'll let them live next to you. Right. right. Because and I heard, I think it was John Greshner say, um, or someone from the Aaron Brotherhood, like I belong here. This is, uh, this was where right. it should be there. There's right. no other uh, p- prisons. Yeah. This prison was made for me. This is why I'm here. And, there's a certain level of person where they're institutionalized and they're never going to be fit. Like Tom Silverstein, let me ask you, let's say in 2023 he went out. um, Could he even function as a human being? I, I wouldn't think he could. I mean,
2: I, you know, he was a, part of the reason he survived was he, he had learned to adapt. I think that, you know, it would have been interesting to see if they would have released him and he would have, moved in with this woman who was in love with him, if he would have been able to survive or, you know, um, if the first person who, who crossed him would have ended up dead. I mean, it, that's kind of an unknown and it was certainly not something that people wanted to risk. And as you said, there are people in our society who you need to keep out of society. The question is, is the ADX the best way to do it? Uh, is solitary confinement uh, the necessary step that you have to impose to keep others safe? Um, and I think that it's time after what the ADX been around 17, 18 years now, do we look at a different kind of uh, more advanced uh, uh, penal facility where um, you can have certain privileges, uh, not necessarily keep people in solitary confinement.
1: I don't know. I think, I think the government's going to say to you, they're going to say, well, you know, Pete, um, Jeff, uh, it's working, you know, yeah. I mean, we even had any issues. Um, I guess I would say that. But have
2: we? Because even at the ADX, a large percentage of those guys do work down and they get out. And what, I mean, I'm, I agree with you, Jeff. I don't know how, in my experience with Silverstein, I don't know how you keep somebody locked up in solitary confinement uh, for year after year after year after year, and then suddenly turn them loose and say, good luck, goodbye. Uh, yeah, it's um, it, it's got to be, you know, there's there's got to be steps taken, um, not just opening the door.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's very, um, it could be very destructive or it could work, but it's probably going to be very destructive. I will say this, though. I do think there's a certain level of, what does it hurt to give someone art supplies or or books? Right. um, You know, at least allow them to escape the 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 descent that they're in, and and I don't think that hurts anything. Um, do I? I don't know. I, I I guess you don't want to be too soft and crime, but you also don't want to be too 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 much as well. But either way, um, Pete, I would say you're probably at this point the foremost authority and expert on this uh, whole thing, and oh, I have you. to I have to say just a, a really well done a book here. Uh, you can actually go buy it right now. It'll be delivered to you, uh, in about two weeks, but I would also say go get the hot house as well. And I'm going to link those books in the description. Also, Pete wanted to end with, um, is it true that you worked with Bob Woodward? Is that correct? Yes. He hired me at the
2: Washington post in 1980 when I went to work there.
1: That's pretty incredible. I mean, he's, I mean, he's arguably the most, uh, legendary, you know, yep. legendary journalist ever. That's pretty, yep. uh, That's pretty incredible, Uh, Pete. Early it was a pleasure speaking to you. Um, You know, I'd love to maybe get you on again, uh, talk more in depth about your time at Leavenworth. Sure. Um,
2: Before you go,
1: um, give me three words that, when you think of Tom Silverstein, you you remember, like some, or, or just three, you know, things you remember about him in general.
2: I think three words uh he could be vicious uh he could also be tender and he could be um stubborn <laughs> but Did he, he also mean? he also could be I mean this is a guy who if you crossed him uh you're gonna end up dead.
1: Yeah. And I, I mean, think, that,
2: that's the bottom line. And he didn't take that. He took that seriously, but he also he was not going to be you crossed him. He was going to make sure you were dead before you could do anything to him.
1: That's. I'll leave people line. with this on Silverstein. I, I you mentioned the word tender, which is interesting in the in some of his works and, and letters and stuff. He would identify that. Rats cockroaches would, right. would run through his hair and right you know most people you know when you're in your house you see a cockroach you you right. kill it right he would say that he was um very uh kind of careful around to not hurt them because right. they were the only piece of yeah anything he had that was living. i yeah. guess
2: i'd say defiant and resilient were the two terms i would use because yeah. I honestly believe what kept him alive and made him going was he was not going to let the Bureau Prisons break him. He was not going to count to anyone. He was going to show everybody that he could survive. And that is what kept him going, was no matter what they do to me, I am going to beat the system. And, of course, that's, that's how he lived his life.
1: One inmate that worked or was around Tom Silverstein said he's not as bad as they portray him. Sure. He's dangerous. If you push him to the wall, but there were dirty, rotten guards at Marion, they would purposely screw you over you are dealing with a person locked to 23 hours a day. Of course, he's got a short fuse. Um, We're not making excuses for Tom Silverstein. However um, you know, do I think someone that committed a crime at 25 is the same person at 55? I know what i I'm 33. I know how I was at 25, and I'm a whole lot different than I was then. Um, but in the end, I think prisons like that were made for people like Tom. Uh, in the end, Pete, really incredible work. Uh, you have an interesting life journey, um, and I hope you sell thousands and tens of thousands so of it's your help. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure we'll see you other places, because I think, weirdly enough, did you ever think when you did the Hot House, did you ever think at some point, Pete, there would be a place on the internet where people that have spent decades in prison could have an outlet to tell their story, right? There are big, yeah. I mean, Chad Marks has several hundred thousand subscribers and he tells stories about his time at some of the worst prisons in America. It's really amazing what technology has done. Did you ever think you'd see a day where Sammy Gravano would be <laughs> on YouTube discussing, I mean, I interviewed Sammy. It was pretty surreal, really. Um yeah. Exactly. It's an amazing world we're in, isn't it?
2: Yeah. and it, Technology's changed, changed everything. And yet prisons are basically the same with a few yeah. uh, accoutrements that they've always been. You know, when, when, in, This is the thing that's so fascinating. If you study the history of prisons in America and crime and punishment, I mean, the English came up with Devil's Island and, and just basically being cruel to people. And it it didn't change the, it didn't change behavior. And then we went through a stage Ah. in this country where everybody was trying to help people and heal them. And it didn't change. So we still don't understand how, why. I remember interviewing a woman down in Texas and one of her daughters was a judge and the other one was on death row. Uh, There were twins, Ah. a girl and a boy. And the, the boy, the man was on death row and the woman was a judge same environment, same. So, yeah. you know, why? You it's know? almost
1: how, how did it happen? And it's, it's always been the question from the beginning of society until, till now it's why do people do the things they do? But I think that's why we, as people that are into true crime and crime, we, we wonder, it's, it's the ultimate question, but, I will say this. It sounds like your dog wants to get on the podcast. I'm
2: so sorry. No, it's That's all my son's dog. And it, I'm the only one in my office. We can't, can't
1: control, we can't control animals. That's one thing we have to remember. Um, I it's like when I went to church when I was a kid, and babies would cry during the sermon, and the priest never said anything. And I always thought, why doesn't the priest say, you know, hey, take that kid out? And I think the priest almost just said, Well, he's a, it's natural. That's what babies do. Dogs bark. It's how it goes, uh, Peter, Early. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, we're gonna link your books in the description. Uh, let's hope to speak to you again soon.
2: Absolutely. Thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate it.
1: Great speaking Thanks to the,
2: you. Thanks for the in-depth questions.
1: Absolutely, and I'm uh, hopefully people enjoyed it. As always, we thank you for listening. We'll see you next week here on the sit